Good morning, everybody. Um, if you haven't already noticed, your worship guide also contains today's scripture. So if you don't have your Bibles with you, you can definitely utilize that. Um, if you do have your Bibles, you can make your way over to Mark chapter 12. That's where we're going to end up um, all throughout today. And we'll jump around to a couple other scriptures as well. Um, but before we kind of get started, I just want to kind of pivot for a minute and, and really pay attention to kind of our culture and highlight a few things. Um, so in our culture, I am really struck by how much we want it all, right? Just this place in which we live, this mentality that we can fight our way to the top um, and to get everything that we want, everything that we could ever desire. Um, we want it all. We want a beautiful house with all the latest innovations and technology and nice kitchens and bathrooms and things inside. Um, we want the perfect family. Um, we want a cute little dog and the white picket fence outside, right? But we also want other things like a better job, um, more money, newer car, all these other sort of things. And it's definitely true and reflective of our entire culture. If you look at um, the major CEOs of the major companies within um, our country, they just have amassed an increasingly, amazingly huge amount of wealth, right? Um, there's actually over 2,100 billionaires in the entire world. That's B, right? Billionaires, which is crazy. And the top three richest men in the world actually live in our country. Um, so those people are Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, who's currently worth $131 billion. You have Bill Gates, co-founder of Microsoft, and he's worth $96.5 billion. And you have Warren Buffett, who runs Berkshire Hathaway. Um, he owns more than 60 different companies like Geico and Duracell and even Dairy Queen. And he's worth $82.5 billion. That's insane. That's a lot of money. Um, and even for the rest of us, those of us who are like, man, I will never see that amount of money my entire life. Well, we always have the lottery, right? You can go out and win hundreds of millions of dollars potentially, uh, minus taxes, of course. We have almost anything and everything you could ever want in our country, and if it's not been invented yet, you can rest assured it probably will be soon. But you see, that's not even enough, right? Um, we want it all. We want wealth, we want power, and we even want to live forever. Um, so there's a, an article that was published recently that I read, and in it, this um, author, he talks about this idea of biohacking, right? Some far-fetched scientific kind of sounding stuff, right? Science fiction even. Um, but this biohacking, it's this idea that human beings can be transformed through bioengineering um, so that aging could be fixed like any other malady or sickness, right? We can just kind of put a stop to this whole aging thing and live a lot longer. Um, there's even a regenerative medicine researcher who believes that it's possible one day for people to live to be 1,000 years old. Isn't that insane? Isn't that crazy? And you remember those rich CEOs I was telling you about? Well, there's a lot of them in our country. They're investing money in figuring out how can we live longer. People like the co-founders of Google and Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg are putting money into these sort of things. Even um, Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, has created a company called Neuralink in order to develop digital implants for our brains to make us smarter because um, he believes if we don't use technology in that way, then we'll eventually be taken over by artificial intelligence, right? We want to be smarter, we want more money, and we want to live forever. So regardless of how crazy any of these sort of ideas may sound to you and to me, um, this idea of extending our human life past what we know it, it really highlights an important point I want to make. And it's that we want it all. We want everything. We want to replace God and be God ourselves. 
So today what we're going to do is we're going to read a parable, the parable of the tenants. And in it, there are certain people within the parable who wanted everything for themselves as well. Um, so in our passage today, what you need to kind of understand is that we are within um, Holy Week, not us literally, but within the scriptures. We are in Holy Week as Jesus is making his way towards the cross. Um, so today is Tuesday of Passion Week, Holy Week. Um, we began a couple of Sundays ago with Palm Sunday. So that's the triumphal entry of Jesus as he rides in on a cult. Um, then last week we talked about Monday of Passion Week. We saw Jesus curse a fig tree and he cleared out the temple. He cleansed the temple of money changers. And so now today we're in Tuesday of this Holy Week, this Passion Week, and we see Jesus using this parable of a vineyard. But I think it's important for us to kind of take a step back and even look at what was going on leading into chapter 12, leading into this parable, and why was it important. Um, so if you do have your Bible, I'm reading in chapter 11, 27, and following, and if you don't, then you can just listen. Uh, but I want you to understand what was going on as we led into this moment. So chapter 11, verse 27 and following, and they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, all the leaders of Israel. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this, the authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I'll ask you a question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So what we need to be aware of is um, leading into this parable, the authority of Jesus has just been challenged, right? His authority to teach his authority to cleanse the temple that he had just done the prior day, his authority to perform miracles, and his authority to forgive sins. All these things, his entire authority is ultimately being called into question by the leaders of the nation of Israel. And so in response to that question, Jesus begins telling the parable of the tenants. Um, in case you're not already aware, a parable is simply just a story used to teach a moral or a lesson. Um, and I teach English, I teach eighth grade English actually, so I had to teach my students, hey, you gotta understand the setting and the characters to really understand what's going on within a story. And I think that's important for us as well. So in this parable, we have a vineyard, we have a vineyard owner, we have the tenants, we have servants of the owner, the son of the owner. And each and every single one of these people, they play an important role in understanding what is going on in this lesson for us today. So I'm going to go ahead and read from our passage today. It comes from Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to read it all, and then we'll go back through and really make sense of what Jesus is talking about here. And the word of the Lord says, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants, to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. 
And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. And they, the leaders of Israel, were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. All right, so the parable of the tenants. So what we're going to do is kind of look at some of the characters that are, that are being um, told about within this story and what is going on and who they represent. Um, so first, we want to take a look at the vineyard owner, right? The person that has created this vineyard. And what we need to understand about him is he is very generous, okay? So he has done all the hard work of getting the vineyard ready, right? So he's gone in, he's planted the seeds, which become vines, which will eventually bear, bear fruit, Um, He has put a fence all around the entire vineyard in order to protect it from animals and from thieves. And he's dug a pit for the wine press, which in ancient Israel, the wine press was usually carved out of stone. So you can imagine how long that process probably took. And that wine press, it would include a threshing floor, which is used for crushing the grapes. um, And it's usually covered with mosaic underneath. So that would take some time. There was a second hole for a secondary crushing of the grapes at the first fermentation process. There was a canal leading to a pool, again, lined with mosaics, where the um, wine would be collected and another fermentation process would take place. And then eventually they would take that wine and they would collect it and put it in jars or in new wineskins to be used. So we have our owner and he has done all of this hard work, right? He's done it all himself. And then he has taken it and he's leased it out to some other tenants and he's left the country. And in ancient Israel, this is actually a very common practice. So much of the land was owned by people who didn't necessarily live there. And so they would lease it out to others um, to be able to work it and to make produce. And then they would collect a certain percentage of that based on a previously agreed arrangement as the owner of that land. So for those that are hearing Jesus speak of this parable, it would have been a very um, familiar practice to them. They would understand within this story. At the same time, they would also be well aware that a vineyard was often used as a metaphor to describe the nation of Israel. Just like last week, we learned that the fig tree was used as a metaphor for Israel as well. So Israel, it is called a vine or a vineyard all throughout the Old Testament, many different places. You see it in Psalm 80, Hosea 10, throughout Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, just to name a few different places that you you find that kind of metaphor. And so those hearing Jesus preach this parable, they would immediately know that the vineyard owner then symbolizes God because God is the one who had planted the nation of Israel where they were. He has driven out other nations so that they could be there. Um, He has fought for them and cared them and ultimately is responsible um, for leading them as well. So God is the great and generous vineyard owner because he gets all the glory um, for the place having been built and cared for and maintained. So that's who the owner kind of represents. And then we see the tenants within the story. And so they're the ones that are leasing the vineyard, right? Remember, they've done nothing up until this point, right? The vineyard owner has done everything. He has planted the vineyard, created the fence, um, the tower, the wine press, all these things, right? So this vineyard, it is move-in ready, right? All they got to do is show up, set up shop, wait for everything to be harvested, and then process the wine. And so they're the ones that collect the grape and and they crush the grapes and create the wine. And so around this time, the owner, he sends sends some servants to go to these tenants in order to collect what he was due, right? His share of the harvest. And he's not demanding all of it. He's not demanding any more than what was already agreed upon previously. It's just his rightful share as the owner. 
And so what is their response to this? Verse 3, the servant that was sent, they took him and beat him and sent him back to the owner empty-handed. And so another servant is sent, a different one. And verse 4, they struck him on the head and they treated him shamefully. And so another servant is sent, verse 5, and they killed him. So it's getting increasingly, increasingly worse. And so with many others, some they beat and some they kill. Wow, right? I mean, where is the justice and what is going on in this story? How incredibly cruel and evil are these men, these tenants, who not only deny the landlord his rightful share of the harvest, but they are beating and shaming and killing his servants in order that they could keep the harvest for themselves and even the vineyard, right, for further produce in the future. But it gets much worse. Look back in verse 6. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent them to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What ruthlessness is in this passage? How disturbing is this scene, really? And I wonder what the disciples were thinking while Jesus is preaching this parable, right? They're like, um, Jesus, everybody is just listening to what you're saying. Are you sure this is a story you really want to give this week? I mean, remember, you're supposed to be this new king, and we really just need to protect your image. Can't you just kiss a baby and look good, right, so everybody loves us kind of thing? I imagine it probably felt a little bit uncomfortable. But these are the terrible actions that, that the tenants are, are producing, beating, sending away empty-handed, treating shamefully, and even killing the servants. And the same with the owner's son. They have the audacity to believe that if they just get rid of the son, then the vineyard will be all theirs. So they kill him and simply toss him out like he's trash to be disposed of. Who would do such a thing? Well, here's the thing. In this parable, the tenants, as Jesus is preaching and and teaching it, the tenants are the rulers of Israel. So it's those same chief priests and scribes and elders who had just um, questioned the authority of Jesus. And here's the other thing. You and I are also reflective of the tenants within this parable. You see, the problem that we see in this passage is that you and I, our hearts are never satisfied. We want to be lords of our own lives. We want it all. Look in verse 7 again. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Ours. The authority is ours. The power is ours. The ownership is ours. We want it all. We can certainly see that this was true, the religious leaders of Israel. They were meant to be the ones to lead and shepherd the entire nation to be guided by God through his word and his law that was passed down to them, and to serve and protect the nation to make atonement for sins as the priests. And they're all supposed to do this on behalf of God, the rightful owner of the vineyard, the nation of Israel. And yet, they sought to take his place. They sought to take his rightful place and his authority that came from leading the nation. They wanted that for themselves. And they desired that authority so much that they were willing and they were eager to murder God's son in order to have it all for themselves. You can even begin to see this creep in last week when we were talking about Jesus cleansing the temple. In Mark eleven eighteen, it says, And the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Did you catch that? Did you see why they feared him? 
They feared Jesus because the crowds, the people, the nation of Israel was astounded at the teaching of Jesus because he taught with authority. You see, the leaders of the nation, they were losing control. And that was something that they could not let happen under any circumstance. They were self-serving and they were threatened by Jesus. Now we can look at the religious leaders of that day and really think to ourselves, how could they be willing to do such a thing as to kill this innocent man? How could they be so egotistical and evil as to murder him? But the truth is, if we really look closely at our hearts, is that you and I are ultimately the same. Left to ourselves, our hearts are never satisfied. We will always want more. We want to be the owners of the vineyard. We want that authority. We don't want to be just the tenants. Ultimately, we will reject Jesus as the cornerstone. And we are even willing to resort to violence in order to maintain what we think is ours. We want it all. And you can even see this in the good things too, like the ministry that that God has called each and every single one of us to, oftentimes we see that as our own, right? We want to do the hard work. We want everybody else to see our abilities and what we have done, and we want to receive all the accolades, get a pat on the back and receive the attaboy for that. We want everybody to know what we have done. We want to be glorified. We want to rule our own lives. We want the authority. And all this ultimately stems from pride and a lack of trusting God. And you can see this desire that we have to take the place of God and to have his authority, it can be seen all throughout the scriptures. Even if you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, right? If you remember then, they, were, they succumbed to the temptation of the serpent and he tempted them with the opportunity to be like God, knowing good and evil, the temptation to be God ultimately. Adam and Eve, they were tempted to take his place, to take his authority in their own lives as their own. So it goes all the way back to the beginning with, our, with Adam and Eve. And you see it all throughout the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament as well. You remember James and John, the brothers that are disciples of Jesus, right? Just a few chapters ago, they came to Jesus and they said, Hey, Jesus, um, whenever you get to glory, can we be on your right and your left hand? I mean the audacity of our hearts, right? The selfishness of our hearts. It is truly astounding how prideful we are and how much we want to take God's place. How terrible is it in this parable that the tenants killed the vineyard owner's son in order to keep it for themselves? How terrible is it that the leaders of Israel, the very ones that were called and chosen to lead God's people and the ones who should have been able to identify Jesus as the Messiah, were willing to kill him in order to keep the power of the nation of Israel to themselves. And how terrible is it that you and I, in our sinful hearts, we do the same. We seek to take the place and the authority of Jesus as our own. You see, if left to ourselves, you and I will reject Jesus every time. Our hearts are truly evil. See, the, the fact of the matter is, you and I, we make terrible gods, right? Whatever authority we may think that we have is just perceived authority. Because the truth that we can see in this passage, the truth of Jesus, is that he alone is the cornerstone and he alone has all the authority. Let's take a look again back at the parable. Let's see what the son is doing in this parable so we can see what Jesus is doing. So starting in verse 6, he still had one other, a beloved son, 
So finally, the owner sent him to them, to the tenants, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now you might be thinking, what in the world was the owner of the vineyard thinking, right? I mean, it's pretty clear that the tenants were not going to give in and give him any of the produce. They had taken several of the other servants time and time again and beaten and treated them shamefully and even killed many of them. What was he thinking in sending his son, his beloved son, potentially his only son, into that same exact situation with presumably the same result? Is he naive in doing so? We see in, in their culture during this time, uh, with the whole leasing of vineyards and land and things like that, um, legally, a son had the same claim to the property as the father, right? And so in this case, the, the vineyard owner's son, he had the same claim to the same authority as well of the property. So he was coming and he was acting on the father's behalf. And so the father, he fully expected the tenants to treat his son with respect as the owner, just as he would expect to be treated himself with the same level of respect. Because in this, the son represents the father, and he has the same authority as the father. And so by extension, God the father, he's the vineyard owner in this parable, and God the son is the owner's son. So let me ask you a question. What was God thinking in sending his son to die in our place? Didn't he know what was going to happen? Didn't he know that Jesus would be rejected by the nation of Israel? Didn't he know that he was going to die on a cross? Was he naive in doing so? We can see in Scripture that God is completely sovereign. He has the power to do all things. And we we refer to his sovereignty um, with the word omnipotence, which is ultimately derived from two Latin words, omni meaning all and potens meaning powerful. And so you can see uh, Wayne Grudem, he defines God's omnipotence as he is able to do all his holy will. He's able to accomplish anything that is in his holy will. He is completely sovereign over all things, and we can be certain that he will make sure to do what is his holy will, his good and perfect and holy will. And ultimately, we can see in Scripture that his will is that his name is glorified above all else. And then we also know in how it concerns us, Romans 8, 28, It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And so what is the will of God? It is that he is glorified above all else, and he works things for the good of those who love him, for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. So why would God the Father send the Son, Jesus Christ? And why would Jesus be willing to come and to die in our place? Well, it's because God the Son comes on behalf as God the Father. And as God, Jesus comes with the same level of authority as the Father does. It's because it was in God's holy will. It's because God would be more glorified through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's because it would bring about the reconciliation between God and man, between you and me and God, that could only be accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ. It's because it works together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. It's because it's his will. And God's sovereignty, it is on display all throughout Scripture. And I love to see when it comes into play. Um, One of my favorite stories in the Bible is about the life of Joseph in the Old Testament. 
And so Joseph, he was one of the 12 sons of Israel and also really beloved by his father, perhaps even played a little bit of favoritism, right? And so all of his brothers, they were very, very jealous of Joseph. And so they actually schemed um, to kill him. And the words that they used, if you go back and look in the scriptures, is actually the same words that the tenants are using in this parable, this idea of taking him and killing him to get rid of him so they could have what he had. But thankfully, the oldest brother, he actually put a stop to that. And he's like, well, why don't we just sell him into slavery? That, that's better than killing him. And we'll just pretend like he's killed. And so you see Joseph, he is sold into slavery by his own brothers. And he travels to Egypt. And he's um, sold to Potiphar, who works in the uh, king's garden. And so he works in Potiphar's house. And the Bible tells us this wonderful phrase, the Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man. So Joseph, he's placed in charge of Potiphar's house and everything that he, that he does there and everything just seems to be really, really successful. And all is going pretty well until Potiphar's wife one day um, decides to seduce him. And then she blames it on Joseph and so he is thrown into prison again, right? Into the deepest, darkest prison of the king. And what does the Bible say? It says, but the Lord was with Joseph. And so many years later, Joseph, he's eventually taken out of the prison through God's sovereignty and his providence, and he is then given the opportunity to be secondhand to Pharaoh himself, to be given all this authority within the Egypt. And so God then uses Joseph to prepare Egypt for a famine that's coming that would strike the entire region, including where Joseph's own family still lived. And so eventually, through a series of events, Joseph is reunited with his brothers and with his family, and he says in Genesis 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So Joseph recognized that it was the sovereignty of God that had sold him into Egypt, so that one day he would become the man that God would use to save Egypt and his own family, who would eventually become the nation of Israel. See, God is completely sovereign, and he is good. His will is perfect and good. And thankfully, in God's sovereignty, he's also long-suffering with us. So if you look at the parable of the tenants, you can see that God is ascending God. There's actually four different times it says that he sent someone, whether it be a servant or his own son. And he continues to send people and to send and to send because he is long-suffering, meaning he is extremely patient. And so God is patient with his people. He is patient with you and me. If you read throughout the storyline of the Old Testament, you can see how God is long-suffering with the nation of Israel. So you see the, the nation of Israel, they, they sin against God, so God sends one of his prophets to call his people to repentance and to warn them of impending judgment. And so time again and again and again, God continues to send his servants, his prophets, in order to tell his people this. And so sometimes they listen, but oftentimes they do not. God was long-suffering with the people of Israel. And he is long-suffering with you and with me. And God's, it's truly marvelous. His, his sovereignty is truly marvelous. Because in his sovereignty, he sent us Jesus. Jesus, you know, he's unlike the son within the parable. He actually knew what he was getting into. And so he knowingly and willingly came in order to die in our place. And to give us his righteousness. And so we worship this King Jesus who bore our sins and God's wrath in our place in order that we might have reconciliation, to be reconciled with God, to be brought into right relationship with God so that we could spend eternity with him. 
And I want to take just a moment and remind you exactly what it was that Jesus did for you on your behalf. This comes from Isaiah 53, if you want to write it down and come back to it later. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and following says of Jesus, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, our great God, he is truly sovereign. And he is truly long-suffering with us. And he has sent his son so that you and I can have, a li- have life and so that we can have it abundantly. It is this Jesus who is our cornerstone. And it's really important to understand what this imagery of a, a cornerstone even means. So for, for ancient times, in constructing a building, the cornerstone was oftentimes the, the first stone to be used in the construction. So you had to set it and get exactly level, exactly at the right angle where you needed to be, because all the other stones depended upon that first stone as being perfect. So ultimately, the entire construction of the entire building was dependent upon this one cornerstone. And so that's who Jesus is for you and for me. He is that cornerstone. He is the sure foundation that our faith depends upon. He is the author, meaning the originator, and he's the perfecter, meaning the finisher, of our faith. He is our cornerstone. And he is the cornerstone of the church. The entire church of God depends upon Christ. He is the sure foundation. In this passage where it's talking about the cornerstone, Jesus is making reference back to Psalm 118, verses 19 through 24. And in those verses where it talks about the cornerstone, we see the steadfast love of the Lord. And we see his provision of a cornerstone, this provision of Jesus Christ, who brings salvation to his people. And what's even more marvelous for you and for me, those of us that are not born in the nation of Israel, is that the builders, meaning the leaders of Israel, they actually rejected him as that cornerstone. And so what this means is that God's inheritance is now open to all of mankind. It's open to you and to me because he was rejected. The death of Jesus has been a blessing to us all, to those who accept Christ Jesus. And so because of him, we now have this eternal inheritance, eternal life that is made possible by Jesus alone. And you and I, we can rest assured that his work is finished on our behalf and that the debt has been paid. See, we no longer, like the CEOs of our country, we no longer need to fight our way to the top in order to have everything that we could ever possibly want. You see, God's inheritance, it is ours in Christ Jesus. And all we have to do is die to ourselves, to descend. So a natural question for us whenever we read something like this, a passage is, what does this really have to do with me? Um, What does it mean for each of us? Well, certainly not all of us want to be like the leaders of the nation of Israel in order to rule over God's people. But ultimately, the, the problem is much simpler than that. You see, ultimately our problem is that we are never satisfied. Our problem is that we want to replace ourselves with God, right? We want to take his authority that is his and make it our own. Our problem is that we don't trust God God to have it all together. We want it all. Have you ever had maybe a plan for your life, whatever it might be? Maybe your next job was going to be this certain thing. 
Or maybe this house you wanted to buy, you had this perfect house in mind. Or maybe this, you had in mind this perfect person that you're going to marry and exactly when that was going to take place. And maybe it didn't happen the way you wanted or in the time that you wanted. Or maybe it didn't happen at all. Have you ever in that moment in your heart of hearts thought to yourself, God, what in the world? I've done everything that you've asked of me. Why are you not giving me this one thing that I wanted? Do you know what you're doing? Do you even care? Or maybe you are in a really difficult season right now. And you've been in it a lot longer than you wanted or expected. Whatever that might be, whether it's a job or just a difficult season financially or any other number of things. You see, in these moments, it's possible that we live in our flesh. And if we do that, then we don't believe God. We don't believe that he has our best interests in mind. And we usually tend to think that we can do it better because we want it all. We want the authority. Or maybe some of us, were a little bit more like the nation, leaders of nations of Israel. And we think of all these good things that we're doing for God and on his behalf. And we somehow think that that makes us worthy of authority and honor and respect to be bestowed upon us. Maybe some of us are just people pleasers, I know I am, or maybe we're type A personalities that want to just get stuff done. And we want other people to be able to see that, see what we're doing and who we are, and to pat us on the back and give us accolades for it. We want people to see our abilities and our efforts and our intelligence because we want it all. We want the glory for ourselves and we want to be in control of our own lives. But my warning for you, this warning that's in this passage is don't even go down that path at all. Don't even think that you can have any of that authority for yourself. Ultimately, that is for Jesus and Jesus alone. Don't even think that you have any portion of your life under control because you don't. And that's okay because remember, it is God who is absolutely sovereign. It is God who is in control. And it's supposed to be that way so that you and I can depend upon him rather than ourselves. So I have some questions for you. Who is it that has the authority in your own life? Ask yourself, am I putting myself in the place where Christ belongs? Am I seeking to take his place and his authority and make it my own? And think about this, this parable. Who do I want to be in this parable? Do I want to be more like the tenants who are self-seeking and self-serving and want everything for themselves? Or maybe I would rather be like the servants who are standing in line with the owner. But remember what happened to those servants as well. They suffered because they were standing behind the owner and doing what he called them to do. The servants of God, they were mistreated and shamed and beaten and even killed for that. In the Old Testament, the prophets of God, they suffered a similar fate. They were oftentimes rejected and outcast within their own people. Being a prophet of God, it was certainly an honor, but it definitely was an easy task because oftentimes it meant telling people what they didn't want to hear. And it was also true for the disciples of Jesus. If you look at their fate as well, they had similar sort of trials. They were beaten and shamed and rejected and even martyred because they were standing in line with the owner. They were doing what he had called them to do. So for us, being a servant of God is certainly no easy task. Obeying the, the owner of the vineyard, obeying God, for us it means being willing to hold everything in our life with open hands. That includes our time and our possessions, our money, 
Everything that he has called us to do, we hold it with open hands because he is the owner of the vineyard. We are not. We are just given stewardship of these things and these resources and our time in order, to, in order to do what he has called us to do. But at the same time, by doing that, it means we need to understand that we will be persecuted and rejected because Jesus, the cornerstone, was rejected. You and I can rest assured that we will be rejected as well. So are you willing to forsake everything that this world has to offer for the name of Jesus and for his kingdom, for his authority? Because that's what he's calling us to. That's what it means for us to be good stewards of what he's given, to be servants of God. So what do we do next? What do we do in this moment right here, right now with this passage? Well, the first step that we should always take is to go to Jesus, to go to Christ, because Remember, he willingly came to die for us. Look back at Isaiah 53 and be reminded of all that Jesus has done for you. He was pierced for your transgressions. He was crushed for your iniquities. And it's because he has taken your place on the cross that you can now have peace with God, that you can be reconciled with God. And this is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news of what Jesus has done for you. And you know what else is great? You and I don't have to have all that authority, right? Remember, we make, we make terrible gods if we try to take that place. And this is good news as well because we would make such a mess of our lives if we were given that opportunity. See, I'm truly thankful that Jesus is the Lord of my life because I don't have to have it all together and I don't have to try to take his place. And so after we are reminded of what Jesus has done, then we have an opportunity to praise his name and to look at this parable and to really decide for ourselves how are we going to react to this teaching. For us, that means we can confess and repent of our sins and we can be the servants that Jesus has called us to be. And even though that may mean persecution or difficulties, we can do so with boldness and with confidence because Jesus is our cornerstone. He is our sure foundation that we can stand on and build our faith on and be willing to do whatever it is that he has called us to do. See, he is sovereign and he is in control. He is the head of the church and the head of you and of me. This is the Jesus that we worship. This is the Jesus in this passage. So what we're going to do now is to step into a time of communion. And so I love that here at Redstone we do communion every single week. Um, because if you're like me, I need to be reminded every single week of what Jesus has done, that he has paid it all, that I don't have to be perfect and have it all together and to strive for anything in this life other than to be humble and to fall at his feet. So we can come to this table each and every week, be reminded that Jesus has done everything on our behalf, and we can be confident and bold in our faith, knowing that he has already accomplished all this for us. And so when we come to a time of communion, we look to the bread, which represents the body of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our behalf. Remember Isaiah 53, where he was pierced for us, for our transgressions. And so the breaking of the bread that we take and consume, it represents what Jesus did for us on the cross. And the same thing with the, with the wine, with the juice. Jesus poured it out, and it represents his blood that was shed on behalf of you and me on the cross so that we no longer have to have it all together. We no longer need to strive for that same authority because he has already done it all for us.
And so because of that, we can rest in who we are. We can rest in Jesus and his finished work in knowing that he has all the authority and we have the freedom to live in that. And we have the freedom to be the servants that he has called us to be because he has completely finished it all. So if you guys will stand with me, if you're new to Redstone, we really love community and we really love to take communion together. So what you're going to see is little circles and pockets of people all around the room. So we encourage you, if you're comfortable doing so, to join one of us or to circle up with your friends or your family and to do the same. There'll be men in all four corners around the room um, with the opportunity for you, for you to take communion. Um, for some of you, maybe you need to, to kind of sit on this a little bit more. Maybe you need someone to talk with and to pray with. And so we'll have people in the corner, the prayer corner, who will be willing to, to take that time to, to speak with you and to pray with you and to share the gospel with you if need be. So I'm going to pray for us, pray over this meal, and then the, all four corners are open for you to take as you're, as you're ready. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the kind and generous owner of the vineyard that you have done all of the hard work, that you have sent Jesus for us to die on our behalf and in our place, that the work is finished. We thank you that because of Jesus, we are now reconciled with you. We're no longer at odds with you. We can have peace because of what Jesus has done. We thank you for who Jesus is and that he continues to work as our mediator. He stands before you on our behalf. He takes our needs before you, and he stands in line for us and with us, Lord. So we just proclaim that now over us in this time of communion. We proclaim all the finished work that Jesus has done and that we can walk in boldness and confidence in that. We can rest assured that Jesus is our foundation, that our faith is built upon him and him alone, and that we don't have to have it all together. And so we ask that you'll bless this time bless our weeks and pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.